And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And you love the news. We love the news. But before we get into the news, we have an absolutely major announcement. Huge, That's right. Huge That's right. After literal years, before we even started the podcast of people asking us, we have finally decided to release American Prestige NFTs. So please refer to our brokerage firm, Sam Bankman-Fried, and everyone he knows, and we'll be able to help you get those on the docket. Thank it's you. It's a huge announcement. So We're getting into this space. I think it's uh, it's great. Uh, the former well, president is now in this space. It's for them, Derek. I'm um, not even doing this for me. I'm doing no, this for our audience, not. right, to help them. We're not them. doing it. They're $99 a piece. Uh, they feature... Uh, our producer Jake, Jake in <laughs> various, various poses. Garbs, yeah, superhero, <laughs> reading uh, Roman the week in history, etc. <laughs> in a toga, uh, sometimes, sometimes he dresses <laughs> like a janissary. You know, it's all it's a, yeah. it's a good. You could also use them as calendars. So anyway, we just wanted to announce that. So please hit us up at American Prestige NFT at AOL.com. Okay, Derek, <laughs> let's get into the news. Why don't we start with Peru? Uh, yes. So people are uh, presumably uh, familiar with what's going on in Peru in the basic uh, sense. The uh, president, former president of Peru, Pedro Castillo, uh, was removed from office uh, by the Peruvian Congress last week and arrested after attempting uh, somewhat ham-fistedly to dissolve the Congress despite not really having a legal basis to do so. We covered this in uh, uh, our special last week, if people have uh, listened to that. What's been going on since then uh, is protests, mostly. Deadly protests. Uh, at least seven people have died so far, uh, presumably uh, killed by security forces, although I don't think that's been conclusively shown. Protests mostly of Castillo supporters. Uh, he did have... Uh, despite being fairly unpopular, I think his approval rating was, you know, something like 25% or something. Uh, he did have a base of support among kind of rural, poor people who are outside of the, uh, you know, mainstream elite uh, political class, let's say, or, or anything uh, related to that. Uh, and they have been protesting pretty heavily for several days now. Peru's political turmoil is growing, with people protesting in large and small cities, in the center, south and north of the country. For some, the demonstrations have turned deadly. Dina Boluarte, the new president, who was Castillo's vice president, has made a couple of proposals in an effort to pacify the unrest. Uh, she's offered, she offered first to move Peru's General, next general election, which was scheduled for April 2026 up to April 2024. Uh, that seems not to have had any effect on the protests. She's subsequently offered to move it up still further to December 2023. Uh, that still doesn't appear to have much, have had much effect on the protests. I mean, there are questions of logistics. So, so I don't know how much further she could uh, advance it. 
before you get into, you know, we just can't put together an election that quickly. Castillo is continuing to assert that he is the lawful president of Peru. He is under arrest and in custody. Uh, his lawyers appealed his arrest earlier this week. A judge uh, overturned, ruled, uh, rejected their appeal. Uh, so he is still in custody and, the, and prosecutors are reportedly seeking 18 months of pretrial detention. There's a ruling from the Supreme Court that could come down uh, today. It's uh, Thursday, December 15th, uh, if anybody's wondering. Uh, so I don't know, you know, I don't have a a result there. But if it does come down and he is detained for 18 months, I would imagine that is going to inject uh, new life into the demonstrations. The other uh, uh, thing to note here is that Boluarte has declared a national state of emergency in response to the protests, uh, which gives uh, police and more importantly, the Peruvian military greater latitude to intervene, to deal with protests. The military is apparently being deployed to protect key infrastructure sites. Um, I mention this because anybody who knows the history of the Peruvian military uh, knows that it has a teeny uh, penchant for getting involved in politics in a much bigger level. Uh, so uh, this seems like something to, to sort of watch out for uh, the longer this unrest goes on. How has the greatest country in the world responded? Uh, you know, I haven't seen uh, a response from the Biden administration since uh, condemning Castillo's attempt to dissolve Congress and sort of... Uh, I was asking you know, about Belgium, least, Derek. I don't know oh, why sorry. you're talking I, about the United States. I just assumed States. the United States, the greatest country on earth. Um, I will say, actually, on the subject of, uh, you know, other countries, uh, the, the governments of Mexico, Colombia, Argentina... Uh, have all, and I think uh, Bolivia, that's right, uh, have all sh uh, thrown their support behind Castillo, sort of at the very least calling for his, his uh, rights to be protected as he's in custody, uh, but really kind of backing his, his stance that he is still the lawful president uh, of Peru. So that's something that may be worth watching. I think the Peruvian foreign ministry has recalled its ambassadors to those four countries uh, for consultations, which uh, is usually the prelude to a, a bigger diplomatic rupture. So, uh, yeah, that that is another thing to to note. But a, as far as the U.S., I have not seen any comment from the Biden administration since that initial kind of you know we we disagree with what Castillo did. We're happy to see the forces of you know democracy or whatever uh, win out, which uh, is is debatable, I guess. But uh, you know, we shall see. Let's stay in Latin America and move over to Chile, where fellow bearded millennial Gabriel Boric governs, and there's been new calls for a constitutional convention. And also, prestige heads, we have reached out to Pedro Pascal's people to have him on the pod to discuss, and this is real. <laughs> yes, and they have not gotten back have, to uh, us. They, so, Pedro, shockingly, they have not if you're listening, returned our emails. We want you on the pod. <laughs> We want you on the pod, or if anyone could get us. I'm to, sure. I'm uh, sure Mr. he is Pascal. So yeah, he yeah, probably is. absolutely. All right. So Derek, what's going on uh, in Chile? Yeah. So I mean, people in the broad strokes uh, again are probably familiar with this story. Chileans voted overwhelmingly uh, in a plebiscite in 2020 in favor of drafting a new constitution to replace the Pinochet era national charter. That process, a uh, very messy process, uh, resulted in a draft constitution that they then rejected by not quite so overwhelmingly, but still a fairly convincing margin in September uh, in, a, in another referendum. Boritz had staked his presidency to some degree on the adoption of a more progressive 
constitution. And he seems to be kind of treading water at this point, uh, from what I can tell, in the absence of that new constitution. Now, uh, despite having rejected the actual draft constitution with which they were presented uh, earlier this year, Chilean voters still uh, express a fairly strong desire to get rid of the Pinochet-era constitution and replace it with something else. So there's a political um, impetus for all the parties, really, in, in Chilean politics to try and give this another go-around. And that's what they've apparently agreed to do, at least in principle. Um, they agreed earlier this week to to try again to rewrite the Constitution. Uh, they're forming a commission that includes, I think, 24, 25 uh, kind of legal experts, plus a separate, uh, I, I haven't seen how many, a group of indigenous representatives uh, to begin the process of drawing up a new constitution. Uh, voters would uh, go to the polls and elect a new 50-member assembly, constitutional assembly, in April uh, that will go through this whole process basically again. Uh, the Chilean Congress has to vote on this. Uh, I think they need a four-sevenths uh, majority, which is an interesting uh, supermajority to, to come up with. But um, that seems like it shouldn't be a big hurdle to get over because again this is I, I, almost all the Chilean parties if not all of them you know agreeing to to back this process uh, so I, I suspect that they will give it another try that the Congress will vote to give it another try and uh, uh, you know we'll see if it goes any more smoothly than uh, than last time around second time's the charm Always. That's what I say all the time. Uh, let's move over to Kosovo. And Derek, actually, do you know, I've heard it pronounced Kosovo. I heard it pronounced Kosovo. Do you know how to pronounce it correctly? I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, my, I mean, I would I would say it's usually the one that you, you don't expect. So maybe Kosovo uh, is, is the way to do it. But I, I always say Kosovo. So uh, I don't know. I honestly, all right. Well, I just I wanted to make you insecure before you go into this news update. Uh, so thank you. I appreciate that. And of course, it's Cyrillic. So, you know, the vowel sounds change depending on uh, uh, of uh, course. stress. So uh, who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, ethnic Serbs in northern uh, Kosovo uh, are once again uh, protesting. Uh, they, they've been on and off protesting most of this year, in fact, as they uh, re have resisted measures by uh, the Kosovan government to impose new requirements for, um, you know, kind of uh, personal identification paperwork, license plates, so somewhat kind of small scale things, but things that represent a break with the government of Serbia. And of course, the Serb community in Kosovo doesn't recognize Kosovo's independence, they don't recognize the Kosovan government. Uh, they still believe that region, mo for the most part, I mean, I don't want to generalize to everybody, but for the most part, that community holds that Kosovo is still part of Serbia, as does the Serbian government. Uh, so there has been a lot of tension in this region for much of the year. Uh, there's a new, you know, there's a new round of tensions, people blockading roads and protesting this week as uh, apparently over the arrest of an ethnic Serb police officer, a former police officer who had been implicated in some attacks on Kosovan police and elections officials. There was a municipal election that had been scheduled for December 18th uh, that the Serb community seems to have largely opposed, that was contributing to the tension. Uh, the Kosovan government agreed to, to postpone that vote. 
Um, nevertheless, this is um, a, a very tense situation, and it, it uh, you know, kind of threatens anytime uh, there's an outbreak of this tension, it threatens another conflict between Serbia and Kosovo. In this case, uh, the Serbian government has asked uh, NATO, which still has a peacekeeping force in Kosovo, for permission to deploy Serbian security forces to the northern part of the region to protect the ethnic Serb community there. There's apparently a provision for a deployment like that in the UN Security Council resolution that ended the Kosovo War in 1999. There is almost no chance that NATO would actually agree to allow this to happen. Uh, it, it is subject to the, the NATO peacekeeping force saying okay and letting the, the Serbs do this. Uh, it's highly unlikely that they would do that. But that's show, I think that, that uh, shows how quickly the situation could escalate and, and uh, you know how, how tense it, it is right now that you have Serbia basically asking for permission to put soldiers back in Kosovo. It's, it's just a, a, a very uh, difficult situation that could, could easily trigger some wider violence if it, uh, well, if it Derek, continues hold to on. fester. Calm down. Violence in the Balkans doesn't usually trigger wider violence. Both of Princip's shots had found their mark. Despite Franz Ferdinand's bulletproof jacket and lucky charms, he had been shot clean through the neck. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I mean violence in Kosovo. I mean, you know, right now it's sort of you're at the level of blockading roads and, uh, you know, some clashes between police and protesters. But this could turn into, I mean, if it's allowed to fester, the the, the pressures uh, on both sides could, could bring us back to the heady days of the late 90s and, uh, you know, actual conflict. Or even the 19-teens. Um, but yes, you're right. I mean, it's there's nothing about the, the Balkans that should concern anybody in terms of a wider... Uh, wider conflict. <laughs> Never it's, happened. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so let's move a little bit in the region. Stay generally. I don't know what what order I put those words in, but it wasn't the correct one. Sorry about that, everyone. Jake, <laughs> keep that in. Um, what's going on in uh, Turkey, and particularly ab- about the conviction of the mayor of Istanbul, the former mayor of Istanbul? Right. So uh, this just happened uh, on Wednesday. The uh, mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, was sentenced to 31 months in prison and banned from political office, which presumably means he's going to be removed as mayor for allegedly insulting the members of Turkey's Supreme Electoral Council. This goes back to a comment that Imamoglu made in 2019, which is the year he won uh, election as Istanbul mayor. Uh, the uh, first mayoral election, there was there was more than one. Uh, the first Istanbul mayoral election was held in March. Imamoglu won, and uh, uh, the council decided because mostly because the Turkish government didn't want Imamoglu to win. He's from the Republican People's Party. He's he's not part of the ruling uh, Justice and Development Party, so uh, he was viewed as undesirable. Uh, the council decided to annul the election uh, and rerun it. Imamoglu won again uh, the second time around, but he referred to the decision to annul the March election as foolishness. This has been interpreted somehow as a direct criticism or an insult to the members of the council, even though it's 
it doesn't seem that way to to me. At least he didn't seem to word it that way. Uh, the issue here, I think, is is basically that Imam Olu is uh, both because he is uh, a popular member of the of Turkey's largest opposition party, and because he is mayor uh, of Istanbul, which is a position akin to being governor of a major U.S. state in terms of Turkish politics. Uh, he is the probably the most serious threat to President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's re-election uh, in next year's presidential election. And so Erdogan wants to make sure he can't run. Uh, that's the bottom line. Um, and so, you know, that's where this all comes from. There, there was a protest uh, on Thursday uh, involving apparently thousands of people in Istanbul uh, against the conviction and the, uh, the, the political ban. People are treating it, opposition leaders at least, are treating this as uh, a clear attempt by Erdogan to influence the next election and to sideline his uh, his biggest challenge, potential challenger. So it's a budding political crisis, uh, and um, you know, have to see if it has any deeper resonance. I, I doubt it. Uh, Erdogan controls Turkish politics so thoroughly that uh, I'm not sure that he has anything to worry about. But um, you know, again, we'll we'll see. I don't know, Derek. The National Endowment for a Democracy has said that Turkey is on the verge of becoming a democracy. I just don't know who to believe. <laughs> <laughs> they gave them a, a democracy score of seven out of ten. That's uh, really good, dude. Just, just they wouldn't yeah, just give that uh, you know, score out, right? Exactly. It's not just subjectively awarding <laughs> a number. Yeah. Uh, let's move over to Ukraine. Uh, yeah, Ukraine. Well, I have some sad news here. Um, I know we we started off with the excitement of the the new NFTs, but I have to to bring everybody down here. Uh, Vladimir Putin has canceled his traditional end-of-the-year press conference. I know everybody looks forward to that every year. I look forward to it. It's the one, it's the time when uh, he, you know, really lets it all hang out. He's very transparent, answering questions like, uh, you know, how did you get to be so smart and handsome? And what's it like being so popular? You know, the, the real tough questions. And he, he, you know, he takes all of them. And it's, it's a great event, uh, but he's canceled it, apparently, uh, given the situation in Ukraine, he's he's not uh, prepared to uh, accept even that level of scrutiny. Um, the other bad news, which is actual bad news, not joking, uh, is any hope of a Christmas truce uh, in Ukraine was dashed this week by the Russian government. The Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, said that the, uh, the idea was not on the agenda. So uh, I guess that would be that. The... Russians and Ukrainians did agree to another prisoner swap. So that's uh, something, uh, 64 Ukrainian POWs, one of whom happens to be a U.S. national, uh, were released. Four bodies of dead Ukrainian soldiers were repatriated. Uh, it's, I'm not sure what the Ukrainians sent back, probably something equivalent, uh, if not exactly equivalent. Uh, most of the heavy fighting uh, remains concentrated in eastern Ukraine at this point, Bakhmut, uh, which is still held by the government, uh, has been the Russians' target for uh, at least a couple of months now, their main target. Uh, I think that um, they are probably hoping to take it by the end of the year just so they can say, or before, like, winter really kicks in and it becomes much harder to uh, to kind of move around uh, just so they can, can kind of end this phase of the war on a high note. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, the other thing of note is that it sounds like uh, the Biden administration, I haven't seen an official announcement of this uh, as yet, uh, but the Biden administration is planning to send a Patriot surface-to-air missile system to Ukraine. 
uh, in the latest attempt to help bolster the country's air defenses. This would be a step up in sophistication in terms of what uh, the Ukrainians have been getting from their Western supporters so far. Uh, the Russian government has responded to these uh, reports or rumors by uh, insisting that if the U.S. does send a Patriot missile battery to Ukraine, it would be a legitimate military target. I don't know why that's supposed to be shocking. Anything the U.S. sends to Ukraine or that the Ukrainian military is using would presumably be a legitimate military target. Uh, but I guess, uh, you know, that's that's been their response. Thank you, Derek. Let's move stateside for a second and talk about the Africa Summit in D.C. Yes. So the United States uh, kicked off on Tuesday the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit uh, in Washington. Uh, this is where the Biden administration is hoping to win hearts and minds across the African continent um, it's not about China. Don't say it's about China. Please don't say it's about China. We don't want to talk about China. We just want to talk about the United States, uh, and Africa purely because we, we, you know, love the African continent and the people there. And, and it has nothing to do with the new Cold War. There have been a number of initiatives announced. Uh, the Biden administration announced, I think, uh, some $55 billion in, in goodies, economic health and security support, they call it, uh, in, you know, across Africa over the next three years. Uh, I think 150 or 60 million of that is going to go to uh, support elections in several countries in the next year. They've created a President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement in the United States. Uh, they've announced that they're supporting the African Union's bid to, to become part of the G20. Um, and, uh, essentially I think what they, what the Biden administration is hoping to do is to move beyond the legacy, uh, of the last, let's say 15 to 20 years of, uh, U.S. Africa policy, which has been mainly or wholly in many cases defined by counterterrorism, uh, security assistance, uh, that has not provided any security or really countered any terrorism, but it has produced, um, a cadre of militaries, especially in, in, let's say, West Africa, to take one example, uh, that do things like participate in military coups fairly frequently. Uh, or in the case of Nigeria, there's a, been a, a couple of investigations by Reuters of the conduct of Nigerian forces in their conflict against Boko Haram and now Islamic State West Africa province that have just been shocking. Uh, things like forced abortions or, uh, you know, kind of uh, unwitting abortions for, for women who were abducted and, and raped by Boko Haram uh, forces. They've, they've administered uh, abortifacient drugs to these women without their knowledge. Uh, there's another investigation that shows uh, deliberate targeting of children uh, in, in northeastern Nigeria where this conflict has gone on uh, that, you know, be either because they were deemed to be collaborating with Boko Haram or uh, ISWAP uh, or because their fathers uh, were involved with those organizations. So just horrifying things um, enabled to some degree by U.S. military training or at least connected uh, to U.S. military training across the continent, which again has not is supposed to provide security and, and uh, counterterrorism and hasn't done anything for either of those things, but it is the legacy that the U.S. is dealing with now and the Biden administration as it tries to say, hey, we're not all about the war on terror. You know, we, we, uh, we're good people. We want to help. Uh, it's got to deal with that legacy. war on terror was a roar on errors that they kept on making. Uh, sh yes, I, I agree with that. Uh, and and <laughs> are, are still making, frankly. But yes, Damn. I'll, I'll go with that. 
we'll um, go with that. So why don't we stay in this beautiful country of ours and actually talk about something that's pretty interesting, which is uh, Bernie's decision on the Yemen war powers resolution. Uh, I thought friend of the pod, Michael Yuhana, tweeted something interesting about how Bernie is basically a bellwether of how powerful the anti-war movement is, uh, is or isn't. He's at times, Yuhana said, and I think this is broadly correct, embraced aspects that are more anti-imperialist, socialist, aspects that are more liberal, internationalist, depending partially on the state of forces in D.C. So, Derek, I, I'd like to hear what literally happened, and then what's your analytical take on what this means for a so-called progressive foreign policy? So, yeah, Sanders was pushing for another war powers resolution uh, that would end the U.S. role in supporting the Saudi war in Yemen. Um, he'd been, you know, whipping votes. There was a, you know, a vote due in the Senate. Uh, he withdrew the resolution on Tuesday prior to the vote, uh, amid, uh, a good deal of pressure from the Biden administration. Uh, but we have been in communication with the administration all day. And, uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, we have received a commitment from them, uh, that they will, uh, work with us. Uh, to end the war in Yemen and bring peace to that very troubled region. Uh, now, Sanders says that he's going to sit down with people in the Biden administration to discuss the U.S. role in Yemen. Uh, and if he's unsatisfied with what he hears, he will renew the war powers resolution. I'll bring it back uh, for a vote. Uh, I think there's a couple of things happening here. Uh, people may remember there was a war powers resolution that actually passed uh, during the Trump administration that would have forced the U.S. Uh, to stop uh, contributing to the Saudi war effort. Um, Trump vetoed it, uh, naturally. Um, I think part of what's going on here is you had some Democrats who voted uh, to get out of Yemen, not because they really care about Yemen or they want to stop supporting the Saudi war, uh, but because they don't like Donald Trump and they wanted to, you know, vote, take a vote that would, uh, hurt Donald Trump. Uh, those, you know, they're going to be less likely to, to try across the Biden administration because of course the Biden administration are, are good Democrats and we don't want to do that. Uh, you might pick up some Republican votes, but Republicans, you know, have tended, uh, with, with few exceptions, uh, to be fairly uh, stridently pro-Saudi, anti-Iran, which is how this generally breaks down in, in, uh, in D.C. Uh, so I don't know that he would have the support, the same level of support to pass this resolution this time around. Uh, it's been interesting because you've got a number of people in the Biden administration working for Joe Biden who supported the war powers resolution uh, when Trump was in office don't support it now and have been pressuring to get uh, for, for Sanders to withdraw the resolution. They are making uh, nonsensical arguments about how this could affect uh, the peace process, which is just ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it could impact uh, Biden administration's efforts to uh, uh, renew the ceasefire that expired uh, in October that has nevertheless still not led to a widespread uh, resumption of hostilities, thankfully, um, you know, just, just gibberish. I mean, the same kind of gibberish that you get for anything like this. It's, you know, uh, it's not productive. It wouldn't be productive right now to, uh, it, it's take pronounced a vote actually to, to, gibberish. to end the war. Most people Is don't it? know okay. that. It's, sorry, it's gibberish. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's just nonsense 
arguments, but the, the same arguments that any administration makes essentially when it wants Congress to butt out and let the president monopolize foreign policy as, as is uh, typical. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the politics are not the same as they were the last time this issue came up. Uh, so that's challenging. I do think Sanders uh, is willing to, I mean, he's, he's more, he's maybe more susceptible uh, to uh, pressure from this administration than he would have been uh, from past administrations. He and Biden have a, uh, you know, good relationship. So maybe that's part of it. Um, it's, it's disappointing and it's, uh, you know, it's not to say that if the U.S. stopped uh, supporting the Saudis here, uh, that it would end the war. It wouldn't end the war. It would just, uh, you know, make it a little bit harder for the Saudis, or it was considerably harder uh, for the Saudis to resume uh, full hostilities if it comes to that, and and might push them to uh, to negotiate. Now, to be fair, there doesn't seem to be any uh, negotiations happening, or impetus for negotiations happening on either side of this conflict right now. Although, again, there hasn't been a, a return to widespread conflict since the ceasefire. Um, but I, I just don't see uh, any of the administration's arguments here holding water. It's it's more a uh, you know a play to to prevent Congress from asserting itself. Derek, thank you so much, uh, everyone. Thank you again for listening to the show. Uh, please like and subscribe. Also, if you haven't seen, we've got a holiday sale, actually 15% off an annual uh, subscription and also a prescription, which is what I almost said, a prescription against buying into the wrong ideas about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, but if you can, think about uh, Or buying the wrong NFT. Or buy buying the wrong NFT. Don't forget, don't forget our NFTs. Uh, they also could be used as a gift, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again. Bye. Bye. Bye.